Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. At the end of 2019, we were, uh, we were living in Mobile and working and serving at the Regency Church of Christ. And we had been there a little over a year and things were going really well. The church was experiencing some growth. We were really excited about the future and what God had in store. And so as a leadership, as we sat down at the end of 2019 and we're looking at the next year at what 2020 was going to bring, we, we just kept asking the question, like, what's next? What's next for us as a church at that time? And what did we need to do next as a church to continue the growth? And so that became the theme for the year of 2020. Our theme at Regency was going to be what's next. And we made this graphic. We plan all of these off, uh, awesome things. And then at the end, of January uh, the end of January 2020, there was a pipe on the back of the baptistry that burst in the middle of the night, and it completely flooded the auditorium and the church lobby, about three or four inches of water sitting in the auditorium. So that took on a major cleanup project and renovation and wasn't able to use the auditorium for a really long period of time, which worked out perfectly because do you remember what happened in March of 2020? We all got sent home for a little while and online church became the thing and we did that for a little bit. And then finally, we were able to kind of get back to some sense of normalcy and camp was right around the corner. It's one of the things that I love is Bible camp. And then we had to cancel Bible camp because of COVID. And then that summer, you remember, there were the riots and the unrest and all of the anxiety that was going on. And then finally, August, school was going to be coming around the corner. We could at least go back to school. And we did with these face coverings. And if you've ever tried to teach with something covering your face, it's not enjoyable. And try to coach with something covering your face. It's even more difficult. You just do like all the other coaches and just pull your mask down and say what you're going to say anyways. And then in September, uh, after August, then in September, then we had Hurricane Sally, and that's something that was felt here. And so after a couple of months into 2020, we just stopped asking what was next. We didn't want to know. It's just life kept coming with a little bit more. It quickly became the worst theme that had ever been created for a church. We seriously stopped showing the graphic. We never printed the shirts, and we never asked the question ever again until we moved. It's a question that I love, though, even though for that year it was the one question I didn't want to hear anymore. But it's a question that I love because I like to think about the future. I like to kind of forecast of where we're going to go. I live and operate by my calendar, and I like to think about what's next. Well, over the last several weeks, we've been going through John chapters 18 through 21 as we were kind of finishing up a pretty long journey through the gospel of John that we've taken breaks going through over the last year and a half. And as we look at John chapter 21 this morning, I really think it answers that question, what's next? I want you to imagine that you're one of the disciples. You've been living with Jesus for the last three to three and a half years. You witnessed the horrific scene of his crucifixion. You saw him after he had been raised from the dead and the excitement that that brought. But then there came that question because he had always been talking about how he was going to ascend back to his father. You just didn't know when. 
And you have to ask the question, what's next? What are we going to do next? What will we do when Jesus is not on this earth? How will we survive? Well, John chapter 21 answers that question of what it looks like for a follower of Jesus to live without Jesus physically present here on this earth, but to be empowered by his Holy Spirit. And when I read John 21, I read three different aspects of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus, not only for those disciples who were living in that first century, but for us as well who are living in the 21st century, who don't have Jesus physically here with us, but who have his spirit residing within us. Three aspects of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus, to faithfully serve him. The first one is obedience. So if you got your Bible, I'd love for you to join me in John chapter 21. We're going to start in the first six verses. It said, after Jesus revealed himself again to the, to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. So they went and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And at daybreak, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to, him, to them, children, have you caught any fish? And they answered, no. And he said to them, well, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they did. They cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. It's a phenomenal scene. It's almost verbatim to the scene in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first calls his disciples. And this is a scene in the Bible that really messes with me because I don't know about you. Have you ever had somebody try to tell you how to do your job and they've never done your job before? Maybe that's happened to you before. And they've got great suggestions for you, but they have no idea what they're talking about because they've never been in your line of work. Well, here is Jesus, though they don't know it's Jesus in both occasions of Luke 5 and in John 21, and it's at the beginning of his ministry and the end of his time here on earth, and they've been fishing all night long, and both of the accounts are exactly the same. They caught nothing. Now, for a professional fisherman to go out and catch nothing doesn't just mean they came home with nothing, but they actually lost money because of what it took to make that operation happen. It wore down their equipment. It was money in their boat. It lost them money that night, and they knew exactly how to fish, but for whatever reason, they caught no fish. And can you imagine being in that boat? You're frustrated. You've had a fruitless night. You're exhausted. You're ready to go home and get some sleep and just absorb the failure that came with going fishing all night long and catching nothing. And here's a person on the shore who says, of all things, just throw the nets on the other side of the boat. Because if you're like me and you're insanely sarcastic, you would respond something to the effect of, well, of course, all the fish are on the right side of the boat because all night long we were only casting our nets on the left side of the boat. Guys, why didn't we think about throwing them on the other side of the boat? That's me and my sarcasm. But in their obedience, they do. They cast their nets on the right side of the boat. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, that's literally where all of the fish it's almost like if you could watch from a, a drone above, you would have this massive school of fish on the right side of the boat and just nothing on the left side. And there's so many fish, they're having a hard time hauling it in. And it's a, this reminder in this lesson about obedience, that obedience requires trust, doesn't it? As children, that's what your parents were trying to teach you. 
Maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, they were trying to teach you about trust because they probably had or have some rules for you. If you're a parent here today, you have rules for your kids and you're trying to create boundaries and safe places for your child and you know that there are certain dangers for your kid and so you place those boundaries that we call rules and you put them in place to protect your child and you're inviting your child into your heart to trust you because that's what you want them to do. Like when they were real little or when you were little, real little, your parents had this rule, don't play in the street. Because if you play in the street, what could happen? Well, if you're like our kids, we would tell them you get squashed like a bug. We wanted them to have this great image of what would happen if they played in the street and it would be catastrophic. You'll get just absolutely squished, flattened out like on the cartoons, like a bug. Well, that was our way of inviting them into our heart to understand that this rule is for their own protection. It could cause you greater harm. As you got older, the rules changed, but the principle stayed the same. And it became this battle or tug of war or struggle over whether or not you were going to trust the rules of those who were in authority above you. And maybe you thought, oh, those rules are crazy. They're ridiculous. I shouldn't have to do that. But then maybe as you got older, you realize, oh, maybe they weren't as crazy, so ridiculous. Maybe I should have trusted them a little more. Would have kept me from a lot of trouble and heartache and craziness and chaos. And they were there to protect you. But it became a, a matter of trust. And that's the story of the Bible. All the way in the opening story of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, these first humans are created. They're called to trust God about this one tree in the garden. Just leave it alone and trust that what God is telling you is best. But even when Jesus was here on this earth and he taught, what he's inviting us into is to trust him through obedience. And you just think about a couple of things he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll just give you two examples. One of the things that Jesus taught about had to do with our relationships. And he, talked, he taught about this scenario where when you're headed to the altar, or for us it might be something somewhere like coming to church might be a good analogy. And you're driving to church on a Sunday morning and on your drive you remember that there is somebody who has a problem with you, somebody that has something against you. It's not necessarily that you did anything to offend them, but they have something against you. So rather than completing your time at, at church and going to worship, you should actually stop, turn your car around, drive to their house, first be reconciled to them, and then come back and engage in your time of worship. That's the modern context of what Jesus was teaching. And the reason why Jesus taught that of uh, reconciling our relationships before we engage in an act of worship is because you know this, when you remember that there's somebody who has a problem with you, that's all you can think about anyways, and you're going through all these mental hoops of what did I do wrong? Did I say something wrong? All the while church is going on all around you and that's dominating your thoughts and even during the time of prayer, it's all you can focus on and then the tray of the bread comes and that's all you're thinking about and you're just going through the motions of worship because your brain is being dominated by this relationship that you're being challenged with, and maybe or maybe not, you haven't even done anything wrong. And Jesus says, before you go, just make it right. But then another thing he taught about in the Sermon on the Mount has to do with our money. And he talked about don't lay up treasures on earth. Don't put all of your hope in possessions and bank accounts and things here on this earth. Why? Because at some point they're going to rust and destroy. They're going to go back to the landfill. They're going to become garbage or they're going to be left for somebody else. Or it could just all be gone in a matter of moments, on a really bad day, 
really bad series of events and you're left with nothing. And now what do you have as part of your future? Where has your trust been placed? And it's a matter of trust of whether or not we will truly surrender all of those to King Jesus. That's what he's inviting us to do. Because there's a line in that story, I don't know if you caught it, it said that they had been fishing all night, but they caught nothing. That's a great description of what it looks like when we're simply living for ourselves. I kind of liken it to the mom who has young kids at the house and she's trying to clean the house. And as you're cleaning and you clean up the one room and then you leave and you go to the next room, the kids come right behind you and they pull out everything that you just cleaned up, but it somehow looks even worse than before. And then you move to the next room and they come behind you in the room you just cleaned and they pull it all out and you get done and you look back and you go, all of this work and the house is worse than it was before and you've done a lot of work, but you have absolutely nothing to show for it. It's exactly what the disciples were enduring. They had done a lot of work that night of casting their nets, but they had nothing to show for it. And that's exactly what it means to live on your own, to do life your way instead of trusting the way of Jesus. Yeah, at the end of time, at the end of your life, you might have a lot of money in, in, in a physical bank account. But if you've not surrendered your life to Christ, your eternal bank account is at zero. And then Jesus would say, what good is it? What good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? When it comes to relationships, and you just burn through relationship after relationship, never truly surrendering your heart to Christ, and serving him as opposed to serving yourself. And what you're left with is yourself because it's hard to live with a self-centered person, isn't it? He's asking us and inviting us to trust him. So my question for you is, what is Jesus calling you to trust him with? What area of your life is he calling you to surrender it to him? It's going to require you to trust. Well, here's the second aspect of following Jesus from this text, and it's got to do with relationship. Let's pick up in verse 9 of John chapter 21. It says, they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in the place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter goes back onto the boat, hauls the net ashore full of a lot of fish. In fact, John says there's 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. Now, can you imagine having breakfast with Jesus on this morning? He's been raised from the dead just days before, maybe a couple of weeks before. He's appeared to them on other occasions, but this one was special because he's inviting them into breakfast. And you can only imagine the excitement that Jesus might have conquered death and been raised from the dead. Like what other concern could you have? And he's inviting them to share this meal with him. And this is phenomenal because this is an invitation into relationship. There's something special that happens when you share a meal together. And don't miss the language that John uses here. Every detail he gives us is significant. Did you catch the two items that were on the menu that day? It just so happened to be bread and fish. 
Now, if you remember all the way back, all the way back in John chapter 6, Jesus performs this miracle that was so profound that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all thought it was important to include it in their account of the life of Jesus Christ. In fact, that feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus multiplies that five loaves and two fish, it's the only miracle that Jesus performed that all four gospel writers include in their account. There's something significant about it. And then after that, in John chapter 6, after Jesus performs the miracle, John records this really long discourse, this really long sermon of Jesus about that miracle and about the bread and the fish. And they've come back to him, the people who have received the food the day before, they come back and they're looking for more food. And Jesus turns up the energy and the commitment level And he talks about bread and he talks about how his body is the true bread that we should be feeding on and his blood is the true drink that we should be drinking on. And they were really weirded out because they're like, is he promoting cannibalism? No, he's not. He's promoting a deep and abiding relationship with him. He's inviting us to find what truly sustains our soul. Now, what, let me ask you this. What meal of the day sustains you? Maybe you're like, all three of them. For me, it's lunch, okay? That is my meal. Breakfast, while I love our Tuesday morning men's breakfast, and I'm thankful for it. We have great fellowship. If you're looking for a way to get plugged in, gentlemen, that's a great way to do it. I love our Tuesday morning men's breakfast. Every other day of the week, I live for lunch, okay? It's just a a survival mode to get to lunch, and sometimes that happens at like 10, 15 in the morning, depending on if I, you know, really weak-minded that day. Sometimes I'll hold off, you know, eat really late around like 11.45 in, in the morning, but I live for lunch. I could go without any other meal of the day as long as I can have a really good lunch. That's my primary meal. And I know some people are like, no, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Prove it. That, that research is completely fabricated. It's not even true. Lunch is what, I, what sustains me, okay? If I miss lunch, I'm not a happy person to be around, so you may want to, you know, check with me. I'm just kidding. I'm a happy person all the time. I love lunch. It sustains me. Well, have you ever had one of those days where you're just really, really busy, and you look up and you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't even eat lunch today. Never happened to me ever. Probably won't ever happen to me. But I want you to think about what sustains you. And as life gets really chaotic, and all of a sudden you find work is getting really stressful. The, the amount of time that it's taking from you, maybe even at the job or mentally is just dominating your life and your thoughts are getting just completely overtaken by work or there's chaos going on at home and it's all you can think about and it's all that consumes you all of the time. Or maybe there's school and there's so many projects after projects and there's deadlines and there's late night homework and tests that are coming up and papers to write and there's all these commitments and extracurriculars And all of this stuff is going on. And what can happen, and maybe it happens for you because I know that it happens in my life, is that rather than doubling down on my relationship with Jesus, what I actually do is I double down on trying to control what I can't control anyways. And so I work a little harder and and I try to put in more time and I try to work a little extra to control the situation so that I'm not so stressed and I fail and I make it worse. When actually... What I need to do in that moment and what you need to do in that moment is what Jesus is inviting us to do in John 21, is engage in relationship. Rather than doubling down to control, we should double down on our time with Christ. It's why our weekly gatherings are so important. And I know there's a lot that's going on in your life, and I know that there's a lot that's going on in the world, and it can be so easy 
to say, you know, man, it's just been so stressful. It's been such a busy week. We're just gonna hang out at the house. We're just gonna have a family weekend. But what we're doing as a family when we gather here together is we are re-centering our hearts back on Jesus. That the one thing we need the most is to be with God and to be with his people and to lift our hearts before him to say, God, in all of the chaos that's going on in my world, what I need most is you. You are what sustains me. I don't need 30 more minutes or another hour or two of sleep. I don't need more time to just waste. What I need is you. I need you to sustain me. And we gather together and we come around that metaphorical table that we call the Lord's Supper and we eat that bread and we drink that fruit of the vine. What we're saying is, God, you sustain me. You are what I need. I'm gonna double down on you. It's why our time spent with the Lord on a daily basis is so important. And what can happen is we can push that to the back burner and ultimately get burned out on life. We can say, man, I just need a little bit extra time of sleep rather than getting up and spending time with the Lord. Or, you know, I just, on on this time of break, I just need to kind of slow my mind down and just focus. No, what you need is time with the Lord on a daily basis because what it is, is it's an anchor so that as your heart is being pulled by the chaos of life and pulled more by work and pulled more by the chaos that's going on at home or at school, what your time with the Lord does is it anchors your heart and it prepares you for the events of the day. And whether early morning or midday or in the afternoon or late at night is your time to be with the Lord, you've got to find that rhythm and you'll find it anchoring your heart. And it's also why our time with one another outside of this building, sharing meals together is so important. Did you catch what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, come and have breakfast. He's inviting them to a meal because something special happens around a table. When you do that, you open up your heart a little bit, you invite people in, and you're inviting them to share in your struggles. And as you do that on a regular basis and you become more comfortable with that group of people, you become more comfortable saying, hey, I need you to pray for me. Things are really crazy right now. I need some help. I can't handle this on my own. And I know that God is asking me and challenging me to invite you into my struggle. This isn't easy, but I need some help need some accountability. I need some strength here. That happens when we regularly gather with one another and share meals. It's why the table is so important in the story of the Bible. Many of the stories just keep coming back to table after table after table. It's why it's a core value of who we are as a church family, to regularly engage in meals together. Something special happens around the table. And it allows us to engage in deeper relationships, not only with one another, but with God himself, corporately and individually. Relationships, what he's inviting us into. And thirdly, finally, ministry. Let's read verses 15 through 17. They finished breakfast. Jesus to Simon Peter. Now you remember just before Jesus was crucified, Peter had denied him three times and now Jesus is going to ask him three questions. He said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said this to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So he said, feed my sheep. I've had people ask me before, when did you get into ministry? And I would respond, April uh, 2005. So that means for the last 18 years, I've been paid to go to church. Just kidding. Not really. Kind of, sort of. But really, that's not an accurate question because I didn't get into ministry in April 2005. That might be the official answer that I give because that's the point at which I became employed full-time by a church. But really, the moment that I got into ministry was in April 1999. It was on a Sunday night in Prattville, Alabama, when I was baptized into Christ because at that point, I entered into ministry because this text in John 21 is not just about Peter and the rest of the apostles or close disciples of Jesus, and it's not just for those who get into some type of, quote, full-time ministry. Every member is a minister. That's what Jesus is, in, is inviting us into. Now, we have a church website, robertsdalechurch.com. If you were to pull that up and you go to the leadership tab, you're going to find pictures of our elders, our staff, and our deacons. But if we had a page that said our ministers, what we would need to do is we would need to put every one of your faces on that page, because if you are a saved child of God, if you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, then you are a minister. Did you catch what Weston read to us this morning in Ephesians 4? He said, it says, yes, there are some who are called to leadership. He gave some to be apostles and prophets, some to be evangelists and shepherds and teachers. But did you catch why? Did you catch the purpose behind church leadership? It's not to do the ministry. It's actually to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Well, who's the saints? Well, baptized believers are the saints. Do you know you're a saint? Congratulations. You just got a promotion today. Maybe you walked in here today and you're like, I didn't know I was a saint. Well, you are a saint. It's not just reserved for special people who may or may not have done some really cool things. Every child of God is a saint and you are called to do the work of sainthood ministry. So I want you to think about your job, your relationships, your classmates, the places that you go on a daily basis, the teams that you're a part of, the friend groups that you find yourselves in. Every one of those is an opportunity for ministry because every member is a minister. Whose responsibility is it to tend to the sheep and to feed the sheep? Yes, it's the elder's responsibility to oversee God's people. Yes, it's the deacon's responsibility to serve in certain capacities. Yes, it's the minister's, it's the, the staff's responsibility to teach and uh, serve in the ways that we're called to. But it's all of our responsibility to tend to the sheep. It cannot be, it can never get to the point where it goes, I wonder who will take care of. I wonder who will call this person who's been missing, or I wonder who will visit this person who's sick. It's every member's responsibility to do the work of ministry. That's God's plan. We are all ministers in service to our King. So the question is, what ways has God gifted you and positioned you to serve? We have this involvement sheet as a church, and it lists the different ministries that we're currently involved with as a church. But then, if you've recently placed membership, you know that there's this little blank. And on that blank, it also kind of asks a more open-ended question. Like, is there any area 
that you feel like God is leading you to serve that we don't currently have listed. Because here's what I have learned. What I have learned is that God will sometimes place things over us on our heart, whatever language you want to use, inspire you, lead you to this point where you say, this is where I feel like God is calling me to serve. And the different ministries that we have as a church are not only the ones that we're currently doing, but are the ways that God is calling every one of his children to serve. How is God calling you to serve? Yeah, maybe it's in some kind of public capacity, but maybe it's in a private capacity. Maybe he's gifted you to pray for people or just to simply be an encourager and to write kind notes, to have people over and to turn your home to a place of hospitality. Maybe it's to do like yesterday and to go help some of our members move and to lift things, and that's such a blessing and privilege. Maybe it's to make a meal. Maybe it's to place a phone call to go make a visit. Maybe it's to do something around here that nobody notices. Maybe it's to give financially to a person that you've met on the street that's in need. A coworker at work is going through a really hard time that you're opening your heart and maybe even your home up to. However God is calling you to serve, I hope you'll realize every member is a minister. There's been this adage in church for years and years. It's called the 80-20 rule. You ever heard the 80-20 rule? Sometimes it's in some churches even the 90-10 rule. In the 80-20 rule, it means that 20% of the church does 80% of the work, or really 20% of the church does 100% of the work. But what if we flip that on its head? Now, we're not an 80-20 church. I don't know what our percentage is, but it's much, much better than 20%. It's not 100%. And that's our goal. It's for every member to be in ministry, for every member to find a place to serve so that when we look at our membership, we see every person faithfully following and serving King Jesus. And one of the ways you serve the King is by serving his people. So how is God calling you to serve? I want to close with this line from John Walton. He wrote an awesome commentary on the Gospel of John. And at the very close of his commentary, he said, these disciples in John 21, they've now not only witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, but they've experienced the Spirit. They know the truth and have experienced the Spirit of truth. But one question remains, what will they do with it? Will they simply privatize these spiritual moments with Jesus, or will these moments lead them somewhere significant? Man, what a question. And it's not only a question for Peter and Andrew and James and John and the other apostles, but it's a question for you and I. Here we are a week after celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And even this morning, we gathered together and we took that bread and we took that fruit of the vine. And today we celebrated it again. And next Sunday, we'll gather together and we'll celebrate it again. And Lord willing, until Jesus returns or until our life here on this earth comes to an end, every Sunday we will gather with that bread and with that fruit of the vine and we will celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus. But the question becomes, what will we do with it? How will that impact you tomorrow morning? What will be different about you on Monday that is being transformed within you on Sunday? Will that bread, will that fruit of the vine, will that truth of the resurrection of Jesus and the empowering of his spirit within you transform you and change the way that you live your life Monday through Saturday? That's the challenge. It's the question that I asked you at the beginning. It's the question of what's next? What's 
next for you? What is God calling you to do? Is there an area of your life that he's calling you to be obedient that you've not fully surrendered to him? Is he calling you to serve in some capacity where maybe you have not before? What is God calling you to do? Is he calling you to engage in deeper relationship with him? To break down those barriers and to double down in your relationship with him. Maybe this morning he's calling you to begin your relationship with Jesus. To put Christ on in baptism. To repent of the sins that are in your life. To begin your walk with him. If there's any way that we can help you. Whether it be to encourage you to pray with you. Or to help you be baptized into Christ today. Please let us know as we stand and sing.